This is episode 14 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Thursday, December 16th, 2021. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Brian Benrose. I usually use this opening segment of the show to talk about angry tech news news, uh, what's happening with the show, producer feedback, and whether or not there's an epic mewling felinoid controversy imminently threatening to tear the fabric of the podcast asunder. But not this week, though. I want to talk about another project I've been working on, leaning on the exceptional talent that the No Agenda community has been bringing forward and playing the part of maestro behind the scenes as, as I let other podcasters do all the real work. Or perhaps I'm just the orange jumpsuited supervisor who stands around eating bagels while the grunts get the job done. As you may be aware, one of my many hats is the streamkeeper for the No Agenda stream. Most people do who tune in do so for the No Agenda show live every Thursday and Sunday in the morning like clockwork. But the stream runs 24-7 with over a dozen scheduled live shows. And even when someone isn't live, there's a constantly updated playlist of more than 40 producer-generated podcasts. That doesn't even count the constellation of independent shows with their own streams, their own chat rooms, and their own overlapping communities. I could go on, but I'll spare you some of the further gushing. Suffice it to say, I'm pretty proud of our community, our network of podcasts. But as I said, our numbers show that most people tune in for the main event, no agenda, and then hang around for maybe another hour or two out of sheer inertia, but otherwise tune out. For the last two years, we've been using that inertia to highlight shows that are special or new or could just use some attention by putting them in the playlist right after the big show. For a while now, Darren O'Neill has been suggesting that we drop live shows into that slot. Being the world's biggest procrastinator, I, of course, dragged my feet, but he and his co-host Sergene got the ball rolling, and thanks to some pushing by Void Zero, it's now officially happening. I've given this project the working title of Up Next Live. Every Sunday in December and January, we're handing the No Agenda stream over to a community podcaster after No Agenda to bring you their own brand of live entertainment. If you followed the stream the last couple weeks, you've already heard Behind the Schemes live on December 5th with Booberry, Lavish, and Quirkus, and then the Hog Story 5-Minute Limit on December 12th with Fletcher and Blaney. December 19th will be a live Bulls with Buds with Sir Spencer, Dame Lorian, and special guest Mo Facts, so you better tune in for that. December 26th is Hog Story again. Wait, what? Oh, I need to talk to the scheduler about that. Uh, January 2nd will be The Lotus Show, a new one to the No Agenda stream from uh, community veteran Phone Boy and his co-host Phoenix. January 9th brings us live Rare Encounter with Abel Kirby and Cold Acid. January 16th will be a live abs in a six pack with Sir Seat Sitter and January 23rd brings us our very own and very infamous Nick the Rat. Okay, okay, enough blabbering. There's only so much or there's just so much talent in this community. It makes me jitty. Anyway, this year is Angry Tech News, so that means you deserve some news. Here is what I've got. From the Log4 Hackers Department, let's start with the biggest tech news of the last two weeks. If you're in IT, you've already heard of the Log4J vulnerability, but this is important and it's really bad. 
Log4j is a Java library used for what else? Logging. No, no, not that thing with chainsaws that transforms old growth forests into useful economic output. Computer logs. Long lists of timestamped entries, usually text that tell you all about interesting things that happened in a program. Interesting in this case is highly dependent on the program, commands, chat text, your complete list of Twitter DMs, or requested web URLs in the case of the Apache web server who maintain Log4j. I would point out that log files are still in the opinion of this old school coder who learned coding before all of your fancy step through debuggers were invented, the absolute best way to debug code, especially for race conditions. Of course, whenever I express that opinion, there's always that one junior programmer who says, why bother with logs? Just hook up a debugger. Sure. Go ask your local dudes named Ben to connect the debugger to the running process on the production server. And make sure to record their reaction. The simplest form of logging is to just open up a text file and write out a string of text to whatever, whenever you need to log something. Of course, that's not complicated enough for Java enterprise programmers. These are the people who bring you classes like Bean Context Service Provider, Bean Info Service Factory, Constructor Template Factory, and say class names like that with a straight face, which I apparently can't do. So I guess it makes a certain amount of sense that they need a full-blown Turing-complete open-source software library to perform the simple task of writing to a text file. Where was I? Oh, one of the semi-logging adjacent features of Log4j is support for loading third-party logging classes to change how Log4j works in case you want it to log text in, I guess, a different color or something. You load these classes by using a special lookup syntax in the logged string. The lookup tag, which is just a special string that you embed in your log code, instructs Log4j to load a Java class specified by the tag and then run that code to interpret the data in the tag. Now, if you're a computer security expert, you are already cringing right now by this point. Please bear with me. One of the methods Log4j uses to find Java classes is a protocol called Java Naming and Directory Interface, or JNDI, which allows enterprise Java apps to locate code by name, either locally or across a network, a lot like the much maligned Windows COM registry. JNDI supports lookups via a standard called LDAP, which allows resources such as Java code to be located by URL anywhere on the internet. Are you connecting the dots yet? The exploit is this. A user interacts with a program or service anywhere on the internet. Part of that interaction involves a user submitting text, maybe in a chat box, maybe in the username field of a login page. The service records that text for debugging, analytics, auditing, or whatever to a log file using Log4j. Log4j notices a lookup tag and uses JNDI to locate the plugin. JNDI uses LDAP to download Java code from somewhere arbitrarily on the internet, which Log4j dutifully runs in the service process and Bob's your uncle remote code execution. The malicious plugin can now upload all of your secret data to the internet, wipe your hard drive, install an Ethereum mining botnet in its place, and then encrypt all your documents to make sure you don't tamper with it. Lunasec, the security researchers who first wrote about this vulnerability, gave it the name Log4Shell, but NIST has given it the much more memorable names of CVE 2021-44228 and CVE 2021-45046, which just roll off the tongue. Whatever you call it, though, at this point, it's bad news for the Java app ecosystem. In the last decade, programming has stopped being about understanding what your code is doing and much more about pre-built microservice libraries to pull in to get the effect you want. It's the difference between being a chemist and being a short order cook. Yeah, I got that line from Breaking Bad. Sue me. And that's what got us into this mess. Unnamed sources suggest that up to 80% of deployed Java apps, and that includes Android apps, which run on the JVM, are vulnerable to this bug. 
old school programmers who take the time to understand the libraries they import to comprehend the performance and security implications of bringing in a feature set written by someone else are being replaced in the market by coders who treat libraries like recipes, who read the outside of the package, import based on the description, not the code. And this makes management happy, but of course, but it leads to faster code generation. As it is, it's impossible to root cause any performance or security problems down the line to this kind of work. And now that the industry treats testers as an unnecessary cost on the business, what management doesn't know won't hurt the sloppy devs, right? The good news is that Log4j libraries were fixed almost immediately upon disclosure. Because this bug is so high profile, any app being actively maintained is most likely already update. So as long as you go through and update literally everything, you're probably safe. Well, assuming that all the packages you use are being maintained. If you're using a project that's no longer actively getting bug fixes, then may Log have mercy on your soul. From the Emergencies Are For The Week department, Google recommended this week that anybody running Android 10 or later who has Microsoft Teams installed on their phone uninstall it immediately. Well, that's not particularly surprising given the cutthroat nature of the two competing mega corporations, but in this case, Google had a legitimate reason. A Reddit user in r slash Google Pixel, and yes, my skin crawls, sourcing stories from Reddit, posted that they were unable to make a 911 call on their phone. After connecting, the phone locked up when sending the user's location to the 911 operator and lost the ability to connect to an emergency services call at all. The bug only affects Android 10 or later and only impacted users who had Microsoft Teams installed but were not logged into the account through the app. An obvious edge case that only happens to every single user of the app before they're logged in. It's understandable that a company who outsources testing to their end users would miss it. Google support contacted the user for details and eventually engineers determined that the problem was being caused by Microsoft Teams, also installed on the phone, preventing 911 calls from going through. Both Google and Microsoft have acknowledged the problem and both have since released patches. As long as you're on the auto-update treadmill, you should see no problems. However, I, along with hopefully engineers from both companies, have to ask, why was it even possible for an app to disable emergency calls? This is a system-level function that apps shouldn't have access to. It would be like your calculator app blocking phone charging, or Microsoft Office overriding parts of the Windows kernel to intercept system call. Oh, actually, you know, they do that. Then don't get me started on how fun that bug was to track down. This comes only a couple weeks after another similar story where an app interfered with an Android system functionality. When Niantic released their latest augmented reality game, Pikmin Bloom, in November, users started reporting that their notifications and alerts were, quote, sluggish while the app was open. SMS alerts were coming in late, sometimes several hours so, and in one case, more than 24 hours. Force closing the app caused the delayed alerts to start trickling in. Both of these stories suggest that the Android system architecture does not protect itself well from misbehaving apps. My standard advice with any phone has always been to limit the number of apps you have installed to an absolute minimum. You'll save on storage space and improve the performance and stability of your devices. And who knows, getting rid of some of those addictive distractions might even help you hold on to a little bit of the sanity that 2021 has left you with. From the buttons are too complicated department. Qualcomm is at the center of a new privacy controversy surrounding its new Snapdragon processor for the 2022 models of phones. At issue is a feature in the processor which can be enabled by the manufacturer which keeps the front-facing selfie camera always on and scanning for a face. 
Your phone's front camera is always securely looking for your face even if you don't touch it, says Qualcomm VP Judd Heap, who seemed genuinely surprised that anyone would disapprove. You hear the company sell the feature. It enables interactions with your phone without having to touch it. The primary scenario is unlocking your phone just by looking at it. Other scenarios include including security features in apps. Speaking to the privacy angle, one analysis analyst suggested that the microphones constantly feeding sound to the cloud were far more invasive than their video equivalents, though this false dichotomy should be viewed in light of an even less invasive technology, a phone that isn't always watching me and doesn't unlock until I physically push a button. Still, Heap did acknowledge the privacy question during his talk at Tech Summit 2021, where the feature was announced. We took great care to make sure no one can grab that data so someone can't watch you through your phone, he said, and the image data never leaves the chip. It's just scanning for a face, which at least means that app developers will have to get somewhat creative to exfiltrate your data. The big example scenario the company talked up is a man baking in the kitchen who doesn't want to touch their phone. Presumably, he glances over at the phone, which unlocks automatically, and the recipe magically scrolls to where he is in the steps that moment. Somehow, I guess it looks for your face to... Scroll the thing. Anyway, more likely he'll be bending over uncomfortably, shaking flour onto the phone out of his hair, trying to get close enough and on axis enough for the low res 640 by 480 image processor to determine whether it's him or a jack-o'-lantern before unlocking. And let's be serious here. On the list of problems Android users have, baking cakes for your phone comes in at number 3719. If I may suggest, there's another technology you can use in the kitchen that you can look at without having to touch that works off axis at any distance and that you're not out $1,000 if you drip cake batter on it. That technology is called paper. Like all controversies, the pro and con debate is raging in social media and won't be resolved there. Many point out that the feature is just like Apple's Face ID, which I don't use, or like Amazon's Alexa, which I don't use either. The problem isn't inherently the technology, but rather who is using it and how. If I had this feature in a phone that was auditably mine, open source, of course, and that wasn't beholden to a corporation that has profit motives that go way beyond making end user happy, then this would be uncontroversial. But that's not how we get devices these days. A simple test if your phone works for you or if it works for some corporate partner or advertiser is to try to uninstall the apps that came with it. If there are apps you're not allowed to uninstall or services you can't shut off, then the device doesn't ultimately answer to you, and you're left putting blind trust in the corporation to whom it does answer, a corporation that has certainly demonstrated on multiple occasions that it puts its own profits ahead of your privacy and security. But still, this feature is coming. You can expect the new Snapdragon always-on chip to be enabled in high-end 2022 model phones. One market I guarantee this will help, I predict a boom in the market for phone cases that block the selfie camera. Thank you to Sir Spud the Mighty and NetNed for producing this episode of Angry Tech News. Angry Tech News is released on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors or advertising and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you got value out of listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click the donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send what you think the show's been worth to you, be it $5, $50, or $500. The donate page also has a Bitcoin wallet address. I don't have any good way to identify who's sending money to that account unless you tell me, but all donations are being used to open channels on my lightning node so that I can participate in the value streaming that so many of our community members are glowing about. Of course, I had to set the node up on the command line bare metal because I can't do anything the easy way. So this is, as always, a learning process. That's it for me. 
My name is Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose, at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay 